and carry on that conversation. Anybody a fan of rugby here? Two, three, four. Four rugby fans, awesome. Believe it or not, I may not look like it, but at one point in my life, I played rugby. Like really like four months of my life, I played rugby. I was 15 years old, and I was playing on the high school rugby team at my school. And I started off pretty cautious, because uh, it just takes a while to like train yourself to actually run into people and tackle them. <laughs> but um, once you do that, it, like, it's a lot of fun to take people down. Now, I was still um, moving from that place of cautiousness to enjoying it. It was really in the middle of a game where I was, that was starting to happen for me. Um, and I started realizing it's actually really fun to tackle people. Um, and then something happened. I fractured my arm tackling an opposing player. My forearm got caught between his uh, legs, and they came down on my arm like scissors. And um, as soon as he fell, I knew something was wrong. I could feel pain. The, arm w the pain was intense, and I couldn't move it very much, and I just wanted to keep it still, and it started to swell. I wanted to get off the field, because I really was useless at this point, but we didn't have enough players on our team. And so my coach was like, just, just stay on the field. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do anything. So I mostly would just stand there. And then during like, uh, the rocks, I would just bend over like this and get in there. And then that was about it. Uh, I knew something was wrong. I, and I just figured it was actually just really, really sore. I didn't know what exactly was wrong. But I knew something was wrong. And so I just started, tried to ice it that day. Uh, my mom took care of me. And I went to bed thinking it'll probably be okay the next day. I woke up, and it hurt even more. And I, uh, it was really swollen, and I knew I wouldn't be able to go to school. I knew I couldn't use a pencil or a pen or anything. And so uh, we decided to go to the doctor, get an x-ray. They're like, yeah, you have this fracture in your forearm. And they told me that I'd have to be in a cast for four to six weeks before I could get better. Um, Rugby was over for me, and really for the rest of my life, it was over. That, that was like my retirement right there at the age of 15. When you experience pain or illness, you begin to pay attention. At least you should. And sometimes we try to minimize it. It's probably all right. I just need to sleep it off, I said. And, so, and when we do that, it's often to our detriment. We don't treat serious illnesses like that. Um, if you feel tightness in your left arm and in your chest, you know you got to take that seriously because it could be a stroke. So even though you're not sure, you're going to actually try to figure out what's going on, why you feel that. Now, it's never really fun to acknowledge that something is wrong with us, something that we cannot resolve on our own, especially if we've done something to contribute to it and we feel kind of dumb for doing it. And it's usually only when that pain is strong enough that it actually interferes with your life that we're willing to face it and go and get help, go and get treatment and healing. And today's topic is like that. It's something we don't like to face, but we have to face. If we don't acknowledge it, then we'll never experience the restorative healing that we need in order to live the lives we were created to live. 
Today's passage will be really familiar to you if you were here last week because it's the exact same one. We're just going to take a different angle this time. So we're going to be in Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. This is what it reads. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father in heaven, speak to us this morning about who you are. Give us eyes to see your son, Jesus, and what he came to do. And give us courage to face what we need to face in our lives so that we can experience the healing you want for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you weren't here last week, last week I, I dove into more of the context. Uh, this week we won't do that as much. I'm just going to assume that you were here, and if you want to know, you can go and listen to that message. But in Matthew 21... The angel appears to Joseph and tells him that he doesn't have to be afraid to marry Mary because Mary's pregnancy is actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid of what's happening in your life. It's actually the work of the Holy Spirit. Mary's going to have a son, and the angel gives Joseph two names for this child, Jesus and Emmanuel. Jesus tell, or Emmanuel tells us who this child is. That he is God with us. He became one of us. He suffered for us. He died for us. And this is the great honor that God gives to our human bodies. A great comfort because he knows us. A great promise because one day he will put the life of his son in us. And it's a great hope. Because God has tied our destiny to his and Jesus. But one of the questions that come up as we think about God with us is why would God need to come to us, become one of us, and suffer for us? And that's where this other name comes in, Jesus. Jesus' name tells us what Jesus came to do. The big idea this morning is that Christmas announces that Jesus came to save us from our sins. He is the God who rescues us and restores us. But we've got to answer this question. What is sin? Sin is a key idea that the Bible uses, by the Bible's authors use, to talk about how messed up and broken humanity is. And to our modern ears, the language used sounds really odd and largely foreign. It uses words like sin, iniquity, and transgression to talk about our brokenness. But odd doesn't mean wrong. Foreign doesn't mean false. To dismiss the ideas that the writers of the Bible are conveying would be a grave mistake. 
They offer us this penetrating and perceptive diagnosis of what truly ails humanity. So what do these words mean? Well, iniquity refers to behavior that is twisted. There's this complete corruption of what something was intended for. Transgression refers to intentionally crossing a boundary. It's willfully disregarding the boundaries. This is you seeing a speed limit sign and being like, "Uh uh-uh, I didn't see that. I'm going to keep going at the speed that I'm going because I need to get there on time. But the most common and broadest of these three words is sin. And sin really just means missing the mark, missing the goal. It's not actually like this... uh, religious word, it's a word that gets used to capture this idea that speaks of a spiritual and relational reality. You miss the mark. If you're an archer, you aim for the bullseye, but you missed. That's sin. You were aiming for the bullseye, you just didn't get it. You missed the mark, you missed the goal. This is what the Bible's authors use to describe uh, spiritual and relational reality that we've all missed. Now, what are we aiming for? What is it that we've missed? Well, Genesis 1 says that the goal is to image God. We are to reflect God's love, his kindness, his character, truthfulness, generosity. To image God is to honor God and to honor others. And when we fail to honor a human made in God's image, this is a failure to honor God. Sin is a failure to love God and others as he does. And there's this guy, his name's Tim Mackey. He offers a really helpful summary then of what we're talking about when we talk about sin. Sin is our failure as humans to love God and others. It's our ability to deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones and our deep-rooted desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. If you wanted just one sentence, it's sin is just living without reference to God. It's living in reference to what we alone believe is best, right, true, and good. And there's three consequences to this that the Bible tells us. One is that sin incurs a debt. When we sin, we incur a debt. Sins are like these uh, demerits that progressively build a wall that separates us from God. Origen was a church father who lived in the second and third century, and he highlighted this threefold nature of debt that we owe. We owe a debt to God, to others, and to ourselves. And for this reason, Origen will say, while we are alive, there is not a single hour, day, or night when we are not a debtor. And when we look back at our lives this week, this year, and we think through the, through the sin, our failing to do what we should have done for others, for ourselves, for God, or through failing to avoid what we shouldn't have done before God, others, or ourselves, we know that there are, are a myriad of different things where we could say, yeah, actually there's like a form of debt there. But sin also leads to a relational and spiritual breakdown. Living without reference to God does not lead to spiritual, physical, social flourishing. Instead, it actually leads to conflict and pain. It does not lead to wholeness. Sin leads to a lack of peace. Thomas Merton, he once wrote, 
we're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. So our sins incur an ever-increasing debt to God that separates us from him. And our sin also causes our most vital relationships in life to break down. Finally, sin leads to death. The Bible says the wages of sin are death. Sin it, uh, rejects God, the author of life. And when you reject the author of life, what you get is death. Not immediately, but eventually. You die. So sin makes sense then of why God had to come to us in Jesus. Why Jesus is God with us. He had to come and rescue us from our captivity. Jesus is the restorer of our broken relationships with others, ourselves, and with God. But the question becomes, how would he save us from our sins? And what I want to do is look at uh, a passage that many of us come to during Christmas. It's Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which gives us six promises for how Jesus would save us. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, for to us a child is born, to us a child is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. What I want to do is just highlight these six promises that we can um, take from this passage. And I've drawn the headers uh, for these six from uh, uh, Paul Tripp. He's got a Christmas devotional. But um, four and five, are, I just changed them to my own. Number one, the government would be on Jesus' shoulders. Our true, uh, our self-rule leads us to lack peace and causes us to live in this ongoing brokenness. But the rule of Jesus sets us free to experience life to the full. With Jesus' arrival, we no longer have to be ruled by sin. You no longer have to be in charge because there's no one else that you can trust. Jesus is the good and faithful king, the loving king who sets us free from the need to be in charge and you know he's a good king because he says, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. And in his, in his kingdom, those who acknowledge their brokenness are flourishing, he'll say. Because that's where he can do his best work. In his kingdom, the grieving are comforted. Those who hunger and thirst to be rightly related to God and others and themselves are satisfied. Those who trust in him and his timing, his leading, are given the promise of ruling the earth with him. Number two, Jesus would be our, the wonderful counselor for us. Sin has this tendency of making us fools. Paul will, himself will write about sin's effects in his own life in Romans 7, saying, For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Jesus rescues us from this foolishness. He comes to rescue us from ourselves. He would come and counsel us in a new way, a, way, a new way that you and I could live. One that wasn't theoretical, but one that he himself had practiced and lived out. 
When God saw the foolishness of humanity, he didn't say, you guys need to just try this. He actually came down and said, follow me, and I will make you into something you are not. You will become like me. Jesus would release, is number three, he would release the almighty power, almighty power on our behalf. See, sin makes us unable to be the people God created us to be and to do the things God intended for us to do. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was able as to live the life that all of humanity was meant to. And through this divine power, Jesus defeated sin and death. And now he gives you and I, anyone who puts their trust in him, this power. Jesus tells his disciples in Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And his power gives us new desires. It empowers us to obey him and to do the things we couldn't do on our own. Like forgive those who have wronged us, those who have failed us. And when you forgive, it's the power of God at work in you. First Peter 2 reads, He, being Jesus, committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when, he hurled their when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, to be rightly related to God, others, and ourselves. Number four, Jesus would pour out the Father's love, his Father's love upon us. See, Jesus does not treat us as we deserve. Jesus has the love that, God, that the Father has in the story of the prodigal son. And in that story, if you're familiar with it, there's a son who isn't interested in living in his father's household, and he says, Dad, I actually want my inheritance before you die. I want it now so that I can live the way I want to live. He's essentially said, my life would be better if you were dead already. And his father actually gives him his portion of the inheritance. And he goes and lives uh, his own life and does what he wants. And then he ends up being broke and um, working a terrible job. And he realizes my life would be better if I was a servant than if I were doing what I'm doing now. So I might as well go back and be my father's servant. So he's walking back, and as he walks back, the father does not wag his finger at his rebellious son. As his son walks back, his head hanging low. Instead, the father has been waiting and watching for his son's return. And when he sees him, he runs to him in order to embrace him, in order to rejoice over him, in order to restore him. His child, he says, was lost and now is found. His child was dead and now is alive. See, Jesus lives to do the Father's will. And the Father's will is that nobody should perish, that no one could live life without knowing him. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection draws us into God's family. And in his family, the Father runs to his kids. And this is what Jesus would do. He would pour out the love of his Father upon us. Number five, Jesus would bring peace to all spheres of our lives. See, Christmas declares that Jesus is bringing peace to our lives, peace with others, and, makes peace, and what makes all of this possible is peace with God. When Isaiah says that the Prince of Peace will reign in such a way where peace will never end, there will be an absence of conflict, an absence of war, and this is something that even in our moment, as we, you hear that, it's hard to even imagine what would that be like. 
But what Isaiah is saying is it won't just be an absence of war. There's going to be something better in its place. The Hebrew word that we translate for peace is in Hebrew, shalom. Many of you will be familiar with that. And in its simplest form, shalom just means wholeness. And as a verb, shalom means to make whole, to make complete. That's what it means to bring shalom. Tim Mackey notes, the core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these are out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. One way to think of this is to think of a, a, a brick wall. You take one brick out of that wall, it no longer has shalom. It's no longer whole. When you repair that wall, you bring shalom to it. This means that peace is not only tranquility, it's not just calmness, it's not just the absence of war or conflict, it's more. It refers to this state of wholeness, that nothing is missing or out of joint, nothing's broken, like my arm. Nothing's broken in you, between you and others, between you and God. And that's what, exactly what Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to do. He comes to bring shalom to every sphere of our life. Isaiah is saying the shalom of Jesus will increase, it will multiply, it will spread to others until one day the shalom of Jesus covers the earth. And if the old illness that ailed humanity is sin, the remedy is Jesus' peace that he brings, and it brings healing. Peace is the message of Christmas. The angels declare when Jesus is born in Luke 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. But more than that, when Jesus lives his life, Jesus never misses the mark. He's the one who hit the mark. He accomplished the goal. He faithfully imaged God and honored God and honored others. He's the one human who faithfully and completely images God. He loves others. He loves God perfectly. He was at peace with God. He lived the way humanity was meant to live. He didn't deceive himself. He chose to allow God the Father to define what is good, and he pursued that. He didn't choose what was in his own interest, we're told in Philippians 2, but he humbled himself and stepped off of his throne in heaven and became human, obeying the Father and loving others. Jesus never incurred any debt because he was sinless. Jesus pays the debt. For all of the sin we've incurred. And in his death, Jesus purchased our forgiveness. Jesus saves us by dying the death we should have died. And he makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God and in turn be reconciled to others. Colossians 2 will put it like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so now anybody who puts their trust in Jesus is given this righteousness. We're made right with God through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Through faith or trust, God now interacts with you and I as if all those moments where Jesus hit the mark were actually us. He doesn't see our all those moments we would have incurred sin and debt, he actually sees us as if we had been faithful. 
Finally, number six, Jesus' rule would never, ever end. His rule would never end, and that's a great comfort that nothing will ultimately supplant him because he rules with truth and grace. See, our hope for peace doesn't rest in what you and I will do in our ability to be faithful or not. Our hope for wholeness doesn't rest in our wisdom, in our intelligence, or like I said, our faithfulness. Instead, Christmas declares that hope rests in the prince of peace's never-ending, unbreaking, always and forever reign of love and grace. Now, what gives us this right to have this kind of confidence, this confident expectation that God can rescue us and also restore us from sin? Well, Isaiah tells us that it is the zeal of the Lord Almighty. Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This means that all of these promises have been stamped by the zeal of God. God's zeal would make sure that it would take place. And zeal means passionate involvement. The passionate involvement of God in human affairs would ensure that what he promised in Jesus would be delivered to his children. There is nothing, this is nothing but God's passionate and faithful commitment to humanity. He's passionately interested in his kids, zealous for his people, passionately invested in people knowing him. See, Christmas ultimately declares that God will not leave us caught in sin. Christmas declares that God is wholeheartedly committed to setting us free from everything that enslaves us and then restoring us. And that is what Jesus will do on the cross. Jesus' name means God saves for he will save his people from their sins. But Jesus, the name, Yeshua, means God saves. God will save. And his name set a path for his life. And he did it on the cross. So how might we respond to this? Because I can recognize it's not really exciting to talk about sin. It's not like number one on your list of like, hey, what do you want to talk about today? Let's talk about sin. That's never where the conversation goes. And yet, right in Jesus' name, his purpose for coming, and one of the reasons we celebrate is that, is that he's come to save us from sin, so we can't just ignore it. We can't just not talk about it. So how can we respond to this? Well, I want to suggest that we humbly recognize our sin. Imagine someone gives you a book, Overcoming Selfishness. You know, I don't know about you, but if someone gave me that, I'd be like, what are you trying to tell me? Maybe they give you a book instead, like, Becoming Patient. Or How to Keep Your Mouth Shut. Right? There's different books, different things that people could convey to you. I don't know what it is for you. Now, some gifts are very hard to receive because they mean you have to admit you have flaws, weaknesses, and that you need help. And see, the thing about Christmas, the thing about Jesus is there's never been a gift that makes you swallow your pride more than the gift of Jesus. See, humbly acknowledging our sins can feel scary because you're acknowledging that something's actually wrong in your life, that there isn't this wholeness, that you're not entirely complete. 
that things aren't the way they're supposed to be in your life and in others. And that something has to change. That it can't stay the same. And yet, yeah, I think this is the first step in God's rescue and restoration that he wants to do in our lives. We have to humbly recognize our sin. Secondly, I think can't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what doing this will lead to in your life. Don't be afraid of what you will discover. It's kind of like, you know, when you go into maybe one room in your house you don't like to go into because it's the messy room. And so you kind of keep it closed. And, you know, if you open it up and you see it all, you're like, oh, no, I can't. Right? There's that fear of, like, once I see it, I can't ignore it. I got to face it. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of handing over control to Jesus. See, opening up your life to him, opening up that door can be scary. How much brokenness will you discover if you do this? In order to experience the healing that God wants to bring, you have to acknowledge it no matter how difficult it is. And see, fear, it blinds us. Fear will blind us to the powerful possibilities of God, of what God wants to do in our lives. It makes us deaf to hearing the life-giving voice of God. It robs us of the joy, peace, and hope that God wants us to live in, that he came to bring us in Jesus. Don't be afraid is this consistent command of angels in the story of Christmas. To Zechariah, the angel says, do not be afraid. To this priest who for decades had prayed along with his wife Sarah for a child. To Mary, the angel says, do not be afraid. This young woman carrying a child conceived by the Spirit of God, having to give up control over her life, her body, and what people would think and say of her. Don't be afraid. To Joseph, this young car carpenter who doesn't understand how Mary's pregnant, he wasn't involved, and he's trying to make sense of it. How do I be faithful to God in all of this? Do not be afraid. And to the shepherds, don't be afraid. Those who are lowest on the social ladder, why should you not be afraid? Well, in each one of these cases, there's something to take note of. It's because God hears your prayers. Help me, God. Help me. God hears your prayers. That's what you see in Zechariah and Sarah. Elizabeth, sorry, not Sarah. Because nothing will be impossible with God is what Mary is told. Because God is at work in the strange and difficult situations of our life. Because this child named Jesus, Emmanuel, was born for you. He didn't come to condemn. He came to rescue and restore you from the effects of sin. Don't be afraid of what acknowledging these things in your life will lead to. Because the one who comes to restore you, to rescue you, is humble and lowly, we're told. He's gentle. Number three, receive Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace for you. And he's come to bring you into his kingdom of peace. And to his followers, Jesus himself offers us his peace. He says in John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. 
See, the peace that Jesus offers is himself. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul will write that Jesus is our peace. He is the one who brings wholeness. And we receive Jesus by regularly inviting him to lead us, to give us his perspective, to forgive us, to help us love and forgive as he does. See, if you don't know Jesus, you can invite him to do this today. But even for those of us who would say we do, this is something we need to regularly do. Jesus, you are the one I want to lead in my life. You are the one, I need your perspective about the situation. I need your forgiveness. I need your help to forgive this person, to love the way you do. I need your peace. I need you, Jesus. See, the peace of Jesus is the only peace that will be able to overcome your sin, my sin, the world's sin. Peace is not possible apart from Jesus. And if you want peace, you need him. If you want to be whole, you need a Jesus. If you want personal, relational, spiritual wholeness, you need Jesus. And the peace that he has for you is not from this world, but it is for this world. It is for you. And it's a peace that will give you the courage to open that door and look at the mess of life in your own life. He'll give you the courage to face your sin. It'll give you the confidence to trust in his ways over your own. It'll give you the strength to actually reconcile with others when you fail to love them well. And that's what Jesus came to do. He is Jesus. He has come to save his people from their sins. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We just acknowledge that the topic of sin is never one that we take joy in. And yet we recognize that it's something that you came to address. And we don't have to be afraid of it. And so, Lord, we acknowledge we've missed the mark. Purposefully and unintentionally. Oh, we don't want to hide, Lord. And so this morning we ask that you would lead us and help us to trust you as we open up parts of our lives that maybe we haven't in the past and, and that you would heal us and forgive us that you'd bring restoration to unhealthy patterns of thinking bitterness in our hearts towards other people bitterness towards you Lord over disappointments we haven't actually acknowledged We ask that you'd forgive us for the way we've hurt others when we sought out revenge through words, through silence. And we ask that you'd help us to forgive those who broke our trust and we still deal with the wounds of what they did. Jesus, you came to save, to 
to rescue and restore. You came to bring peace. And so we ask you for your peace now. And we thank you that you don't hold back from us. When you say, my peace, I give you. So right now, Jesus, we want to receive your peace. And we ask that your love would enter into those places, those wounds of our life that we have experienced from others, the wounds we have inflicted ourselves upon ourselves. And we ask Jesus that you would give us the strength to make things right with others. That you would give us the courage to trust you in a new way. And we thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit. That we're never alone. You are always with us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.